what are the principles we should be bringing into early stage prediction? It's that, you know, first of all, quantification is not bad. The way that we are doing quantification is bad. Mm. Right? And the reason quantification is bad. Welcome to the Innovation Metrics Podcast, where we bring you the latest on innovation management. We provide insights on how to measure innovation, innovation accounting, and managing the uncertain process of developing new, sustainable, and profitable business models. You can find links to the main topics covered in this episode and information about the guests and hosts in the show notes, or go to our blog on innovationmetrics.co. Your host is Aaliyah Eilert. So today we've got Tristan Cromer back on the show. Hi, Tristan. Hi, Leah. How's it going? Yeah, it's going good. Thank you. Um, for this time, maybe I thought you could um, tell the tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, like uh, your background, um, maybe your company, what you're doing. You happy to share that with us? Uh, sure. Uh, my background is pretty haphazard. Uh, I, I have a philosophy degree. I was uh, born in New York City. I was in the music industry for 10 years as a uh, musician, producer, writer, pretty much anything I could I could uh, earn a dollar from. And I transitioned uh, from marketing into uh, the IT security industry, where I stayed for, for five years, living in five different countries around the world, Taiwan, Germany, uh, Vietnam. Uh, Switzerland, eventually landing in San Francisco and uh, moving into the the wide and wonderful field of innovation via being a startup entrepreneur. Um, so that's kind of me a little bit all over the place. Uh, my company now has uh, worked with over 25 different accelerators around the world. Uh, I believe everywhere from, from Ramallah to Mexico uh, to we've worked with uh, startups in Japan and more focused recently on corporate and large organizational innovation, mm -hmm. including uh, working with the civil service in the United Kingdom, uh, companies such as Unilever and fast moving consumer goods and mm -hmm. uh, high technology companies. Uh, as well. So really just a, a diverse range of experience, uh, but all focused on how do we get new markets into, uh, sorry, new products into new markets as fast as possible. Um, that's kind of been the driving force of my career, I think, for the past 15, 20 years. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. Because the last time we spoke, we had Tristan on and uh, We spoke about how to measure teams. Today, we want to talk about more about product. Ah, okay. So basically, we want to talk about innovation accounting. We want to talk a bit about why, why we need that. Why do we need anything else? Uh, are we not happy with what we have? Why do we need to change anything? What are the problems? Yeah. Right? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. The answer to that should be relatively obvious. Like nobody's happy with what we have. Like everybody knows it's a sham. And all of our projections are typically off by a very significant factor. But you know, yeah, no, that's great. I think that's great. Let's let's talk, dive a bit into into the issues. So maybe we start with the issue of the business case to to have a really good uh, starting point here, specifically in the context of a large organization. If you want to progress your project significantly any project, but also an innovation project or venture, you need to provide a business case, right? And yeah. And 
Yeah, and, and and business case is just some language for pitch, right? So the the business case you provide to venture capitalists is just a different type of business case. Business case is the thing you have to provide inside a corporation to your boss or your business sponsor that says, here, I will make you money. And if you put resources or venture capital funds or whatever the case may be into my organization or my startup, uh, I am going to give you some sort of return on that investment, whether it is dollars or uh, lives saved or uh, actions taken or, or whatever, whatever the output measurement that you want is that your organization wants, like we will get you stuff. Right. And um, that can work. That is yeah, not completely in, in certain certain circumstances. That it's not like it's not an unreasonable request. Like let, let's just start out by saying that. Like I, I think in the last ten years, like there, there's been so much criticism. I mean, just again, justified criticism of give me your business case, and then the entrepreneur, the entrepreneur says, "Well, it's you know, it's, I've had this idea for five days. It's too early to speak of that." And, Or the the data that I'm getting right now is purely qualitative in nature. In nature, therefore, I can't uh, give you a coherent business case. And I, I think that is a reasonable kind of defense. And uh, for a time, that that might have been reasonable because, yeah, the, the argument we were having before is kind of dumb, right? Because it would always follow this cycle of somebody in a position of authority to to grant or deny resources says, "Give me a business case." Uh, and then the entrepreneur entrepreneur says, okay, well, I think this project or this product is going to make a hundred million dollars. And then the venture capitalist or the business sponsor says, well, that's too small. Uh, I only care about things that are a billion dollars and above. Therefore, I'm going to deny your body, uh, <laughs> deny your body. Therefore, I'm going to deny your money. Right. And then the entrepreneur will turn around and say, oh, well, in that case, I found another uh, aspect of the business model, and it turns out it will make a billion dollars. Right, and, and so there's this kind of stupid game where everybody knows that it's the projections are a little bit ridiculous, but nonetheless, there are resources that can only be allocated until you promise to deliver an absurd amount of money. And uh, lo and behold, those business cases are, are generally inaccurate because they've been asked to be inaccurate. We've specifically asked the poor entrepreneur to come up with a number larger than they are comfortable with coming up with based on measly qualitative data. Right. So, no, that's great. I, I might just take one more step back first. Like, so these, all these tools or the, the, or this tool and the methods in there, they are, they may be very valid if we're, in a different, if we're in a non-entrepreneurial, non-innovative innovative, um, sphere, let's say, right? So when we lots of historical data, sure. then they're not just, you know, I just kind of want to frame that a bit more. It's just the, it's just the amount of uncertainty that we need to, or the amount of guesses that we need to plug into these tools becomes so vast that, as you say, we're basically forced to make something up. And yeah, yeah. If if it's something super predictable, like you're sitting in Australia, so you know if you're if you're digging gold out of the earth, uh, and yeah, and you can you can 
shovel you're shaking your head at me am i not supposed to talk that's about not a good example no no uh, finding gold is actually the perfect analogy because the finding gold is actually the chance of finding a gold deposit is uh, a, a ve no even better not just finding gold you may find a little bit of gold you may find oh, a little no, bit no, of no, value no. but no no so let me clarify right no. so uh If you were digging out of gold and last year you produced one ton oh. of gold. Okay, thumbs up. Right? This is non-innovative. This is non-exploratory. Okay, good. Right? If we're digging out, if, if we're just looking for gold somewhere on the planet, yeah, that's that's a very, there, there's a certain amount of risk involved, right? Because yeah, a thousand, a, a, in one in, one in a thousand, right? a 10,000 and one roughly from, yeah, from your right? first idea. Mm. But if you're like, huh. I can see that there's a gold mine here and it's just a question of extracting it, right? Like I know the rate at which we dig. I know the rate in which we process oil. There is only one variable here and that is the price of gold or, you know, there's some variation in the weather and things like that, which might impede my process or something like that. But the fewer variables there are, the better, right? So whether it's you are carting water from a stream to a local community or something like that and reselling it, Or you're doing something that's very predictable and that it, it tends to happen the same. Maybe it's even commoditized, but basically there aren't a huge number of variables that are impacting your production and you've done it before, like you've got the data, then uh, business cases tend to not be terrible. Uh, but the moment anything kind of new applies, like, well, I'm I'm not actually digging gold anymore. I'm taking the gold and I'm turning it into jewelry. And uh, nobody's ever seen this type of jewelry before. Like now it starts to become a little bit more risky because there's not only the volatility in the price of gold, but there is volatility in terms of, well, does the consumer actually like your jewelry? Uh, is the jeweler consistently crafted to a high degree of precision and beauty? Um, the more variables there are, the more uncertainty there, there is, the harder it It is to make a, a coherent prediction. And the one variable that always, always, always causes a lot of uncertainty is, of course, humans. Right? So the moment humans are at the end of that supply chain saying, give me the thing, then uh, it inherently becomes a lot more unpredictable because human humans tend to be weird. Humans are kind of a little irrational and tend to vary their preferences over time. And they tend to respond to a lot of really weird dynamics in society. Um, it's, it's just no longer so easy to make a, a simple business case work. Yeah, fantastic. I thought the other interesting problem with ultimately come up with return on investment or internal rate of return, for example, is that when you have to make a case for something in new assets, so basically you want to create a new business model, maybe you want to create new assets, tangible, intangible. If you draw in your case on existing assets and you come in one case and in the other one, you don't. So you're including existing assets of the company. Basically your number will always, it's like a bias towards continue working on what you already got. Right, like that will win. That case will win against the other case always. So, looking at this number as a deciding factor, internal rate of return, you're basically shielding yourself systematically, or yeah, you're making it even harder to come up to do what you actually want to do. Yeah, I, th I think that's the general innovator's dilemma that that Christensen wrote about. Right, was yeah. hey, look, well, if I if I 
could spend a dollar in my consistently good money-making machine that always returns $2, then why would I ever spend that dollar on something innovative, which could return $2, but could also return $0, which again is a fair argument, even though I'm kind of an innovation person, is that oh, no, actually there, there, are sometimes, there are sometimes good reasons not to invest in innovation, right? Like if your organization has lived out its life and has done what it's needed to do, uh, there's a very good reason not to invest in innovation. You know, I, I worked for Cancer Research UK for a little bit of time. And uh, frankly, like I think everybody at Cancer Research UK uh, and myself, and probably you, uh, even though I think they would be very sad if they lost their jobs, they would be thrilled to shut the company down successfully because yeah. guess what? There's no cancer. We, we've raised all the money and we've cured all the cancer. Like that would be a really great outcome. I don't think you need to invest in like Horizon 3 innovation initiatives in that particular organization because, you know, hopefully you're done and that's great. Now, Andy would make the argument that, no, 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 you're a successful money-raising scheme. Now go raise money for, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, Alzheimer's. That would be good. Uh, maybe you could do that. But my point being is sometimes the organization is a is a temporary institution and it should be shut down successfully when its purpose has been served. Yeah, lovely. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, it reminds me of my aunt. She always said I would love to not... not uh... I would love to lose my job. She, she was a nurse. So, you know, yeah. It's like, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, it's like, uh, people okay. would no longer break their ankles and stumble and all those yeah. bad things. That would be great. Yeah. I'm happy with not having to see that anymore. Yeah. Lovely. Very nice. Yeah. Cool. But then we're facing a few other issues. If we say that they provide no predictive value, these business cases, um, they are very ingrained in organizations for many reasons. And that's the only way really to currently often only way to release a lot of money, at least. Um, yeah. Sometimes we go and, that way of abandoning. Yeah. Sorry. No, no, please go ahead. It's trying to uh, get to maybe get to the next point of what we're doing about it. Right. And so, but we have of what, what, what else we can do other than that. So sometimes we just don't do anything. We don't have any modeling, any prediction of the future anymore. Very often for uh, certain innovation labs or initiatives or accelerators. So we say, look, just don't need, just don't need anything that is quantifiable, right? We like, maybe we yeah. say, is there a problem? What's the evidence of a problem or so? Like very little in terms of predicting the actual impact into the future. Yeah. That's another... so, so just to just to maybe like better define it, what, what we mean when we say a basic business case is that um, essentially somebody is uh, is going to predict how much revenue, how much the, the output value of your your startup or your product is. Uh, you're going to predict dollar figures for year one, year two, year three, year four. And then it's going to be plugged into a, a net present value score, which uses the company's internal cost of capital and all that stuff. And it's going to output like this number that says, hey, this is a good investment or this is an odd investment, uh, a bad investment. It's going to say something about the ROI. But it's just based on these really, really arbitrary guesses that don't seem to have any clear connection to the qualitative data that early stage entrepreneurs or intrapreneurs are coming out with. 
right? So it's it's not that the question itself is bad. And I, I think that's where we made the mistake. It's not like it's a bad thing to say, hey, how is this business going to eventually generate money hmm. uh, or how much? Like that's that's not necessarily a terrible question. It's just the way that we're framing it is a way that entrepreneurs can't answer effectively because they don't have a good way to project uh, how much money uh, that they're going to have. Uh, just like Twitter, when it got started, had no idea how it was going to make money. Uh, Facebook didn't necessarily know it was going to wind up in advertising. Um, but there was a, a way to look at the business that said, wow, these businesses are growing at a phenomenal rate. They have a huge number of users here. And if this company can figure out a way to make even half a penny on each user here, they're going to make a lot of money, right? Um, if they can make a dollar per user, they're going to make an incredible amount of money, which is probably more what happened. If they can really at least make half a penny, they're going to be fine, mm-hmm. right? So, um, so, you know, they may not have known exactly how they, they were going to make money, but they knew at the scale that they were operating that it was almost certain to make money somehow, uh, whereas you look at companies like Uber, which have a higher cost to serve uh, each user because you, you have a car involved, you got to pay the driver, you got to pay for gas, you got to pay for insurance. Um, there's a lot of things where where the margin isn't so clear. Uh, the cost per, to serve a user for Facebook and Twitter is almost negligible. Uh, that means that almost any profits just go straight to the bottom line, right? So it's this type of thinking that is totally fair to ask. You know, like what are your margins like? You know, is there some conceivable path for you to actually return money? That is absolutely 100% a fair question. What is not a fair question is is basically to expect a an exact figure and expect that figure to be correct in four or 10 years time. Like that's just something that's not reasonable for any early stage project. And if you even ask, you know, most, you know, most organizations, what what percentage of your business cases are actually accurate? Um, you know, even the ones that are in the highly predictable, like, oh, we've been doing this for 10 years, even those business cases are, are terrible. Uh, yeah. I think the highest figure I've heard is like, oh, 70%, but generally they're all 70% wrong rather than 70% of them are correct and 30% of them are wrong. They're all, none of them are really that great. And most of them are like 50 or 30% accurate. Yeah. It, it reminds me, I, I don't think I can uh, fully accurately recall it but when warren buffett once spoke about um how he doesn't like to have forecasters in the room Mm. right when he when they make capital allocations basically (laughs) it's just yeah uh, just or just once and then they never came back you know uh because yeah it's just it's just ridiculous uh you know, and, and he's famous for investing in something that has a long track record, right? He's like, he is a proper historian in a sense, right? So they, they can analyze uh, companies that have traded for a long time and against, yeah. So they're very, well, he is very good or the company is very good at doing that. And so they have a lot to work with. And even there, they don't really want forecasters in the room. Yeah, honestly, I have no clue as to how Warren Buffett runs his, his business, but perhaps he's the forecaster and he's just a better forecaster than everybody else or is making longer term bets than everybody else. So we, we, we don't think it's reasonable to ask. It's an unreasonable question, basically, was where you landed at to say, give me a number. Give me yes, a number in five right. years. That's right. Where 
we don't even know yet all the variables that need to go in. You might not even know exactly the material. You don't know your channel. You don't know exactly your customer. You don't know how many there are. We, we don't really know your pricing, right? You, it could go up a lot. You might find ways of delivering even more value and so on. So it's, it's just completely unreasonable to ask for something specific. It is not unreasonable to ask for, um, to quantify it at all. Right. So that is not unreasonable. I think that's where we, where we, yeah, it's not unreasonable to ask the question of how does your business work and how could you eventually make money and how are you going to grow and and these kind of sub questions. Um, But the the precision is is totally unreasonable because uh, what we need, what is not represented in a typical basic business case is uncertainty. Right. They ask for very specific numbers and they have a specific output, which says your ROI is predicted mm. to be 4% or 104%, whatever it is. But um, but that does not represent uh, the most important thing for innovation, which is what is the level of uncertainty that you have about that number. Um, and, and that's really, really the thing that is lacking in the basic business case. There's, there's just no way to say something other than it's really high or it's really low. And of course, the the improvement, <laughs> I would air quote if we were not simply talking, but uh, the improvement that was made was to say, okay, well, give us your best case scenario and give us your worst case scenario, and we'll just divide those two numbers by two, and that will be our precise estimate. And that also turns out to be a terrible uh, way to represent things. Like it's, it's actually mathematically bad. But uh, the improvement I will say is that if you don't boil your, your best case scenario and your worst case scenario down into one number by just adding them up and dividing by two, uh, what you can see is you can see the range, right? Like the width between those two numbers. Right? So the moment I ask an entrepreneur, well, uh, how much money are you going to make over the next uh, four years? And if they say, well, it's somewhere between 100 million and zero, well, okay, now I actually have a really valuable piece of information hidden away in there. It's like, well, the width of that range, like the, the, the delta between zero and 100 million is in fact 100 million. So that expresses to me that the entrepreneur is telling me there is a vast degree of uncertainty here. Whereas if you made the same prediction kind of on a, on a core business, one that has some historical track record, you might say, look, in our worst years, uh, we've made 50 million. And uh, in our best years, we made 100 million. So I would say, you know, even without any information about this this business, uh, it's got to be somewhere between 150 million, uh, 100 and 50 million, right? So that expresses that the the level of uncertainty in this project is actually much much lower, and that's really what we're after, right? We need an understanding of what is the level of uncertainty in this project because. If you're a venture capitalist and you're looking at horizon three or highly disruptive projects or transformational projects, uh, what you what you should be seeing is actually a really wide range of numbers. You should see that the, the best case scenario is, is astonishingly large, especially if it's a tech company, right? If there are exponential, um, if there's an exponential equation, exponential factor hidden in there some somewhere, like it's relying on uh, on computing power doubling or something like that. It's relying on network effects. It's relying on a, uh, a strong user base that is adding value as you grow more users. Well, then your best case scenario should be this crazy exponential hockey stick graph. And your worst case scenario is it just, it stays at zero, 
right? So there should just be this massive range of uncertainty. And that's actually what you're looking for if you want to invest in billion dollar uh, tech startups, right? You you want yeah. it to be incredibly unlikely for you to hit that top number, but it's at least possible. Yeah. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah. And I guess managing that is exactly innovation management, right? <laughs> managing the uncertain part. Yeah. Um, I, I think the, the thing that we can really draw from or that we, sh we should be drawing from the basic business case is that the basic business case doesn't represent uncertainty. And one of the things that we can add immediately to make projections better is not to try to boil things down into one number, but allow for ranges. And the range expresses the uncertainty. Right? That's already a huge improvement over uh, kind of traditional prediction methods, at least as far as they're applied. Uh, for innovation projects, but I think, uh, to be honest, there that should be applied in almost any project. You know, use ranges to express things. In any project, yeah, nice. Yeah, mm, yeah I like that. So we so we're looking for ranges, and that is really the best and most honest thing we can do in in terms yes. of predicting the future. And I, I that, think so. It's it's also just the easiest, right? It is also the easiest. Uh, that's good, yeah, because we need because it it's a bit daunting for some people to to do that in the first place, and we need to make it easier, I think, to enable to enable innovators yeah. to actually do it, right? Yeah, that's that's one of the strong benefits that I think there there is to to just allowing entrepreneurs to add ranges in is, is as you say, it's it's very psychologically uh, mm. difficult, let's say, to say to to commit now to I'm going to earn $100 million in four years. And it's it's unreasonable given the amount of information they have because they will eventually be held to account for that. So so yeah, like uh, if you allow them to say we might earn $100 million or we might earn one or even zero, you're allowing them to express the level of uncertainty and you're also kind of letting the entrepreneur off the hook a little bit. You're no longer forcing the entrepreneur to lie to you. <laughs> Because if you just say you must earn a hundred million dollars, uh, or we won't fund this project and you'll be fired, of course they're going to say a hundred million dollars. You are asking to be lied to. But if you allow them to express the level of uncertainty, um, you're basically uh, kind of reducing the level of fear. You're increasing the level of psychological safety, and you're increasing the likelihood you're going to get a straight answer out of the entrepreneur. And and all of that is good. Right? There's nothing bad about any of those things. Yeah, and I guess what I'm passionate about here is always the fact that when you when you when you force people to make things up, then they also need to be delivered in a certain way. Because it's not like the other side is is silly, right? It's not like a CFO has you know didn't go to university and hasn't hasn't hacked it in life. Well, the CFOs and, are typically very smart people, right? Like pretty the, smart, right? Well, that's, <laughs> I mean, so that's that, that's kind of the funny thing about all of this is that you, is, it's is it it is is this ridiculous like shared lie because the entrepreneur is saying like, okay, mm -hmm. I'm going to earn a billion dollars, and the CFO is thinking to themselves, well, this person is obviously extremely enthusiastic, and I know that this is a very risky project, so it's probably only 10% li likely to succeed. So they kind of in their minds, if not on paper, give it this, uh, I'm going to discount 90% of that. And this person is realistically maybe only going to come up with 100 million. Right? So that's what they're doing in their brains anyway. Uh, and it, it, it's just kind of uh, like, why go through all that? Why not just- Yeah, but they're not, they're not subject to, to, to not, I mean, they also have emotions, right? So I think what we're- sure. 
I think what, what comes really into play here is, is the ability to tell that story. So in order to believe in, you know, to come to that point of intersubjective belief in fiction, we, we kind of, the better you tell a story, the more likely it is for you to get funded. It's not necessarily the quality of your idea, right? So it is even less so. So basically... Well, that's true, but I guess that's a, that, that seems like that's a separate issue, right? Like there's... there's I don't know. I feel a, like it's in the tool, right? It's in the, it's in the process. Like it's by, by, by having to... Like by, by forcing these systems into the organization or, or remain or, or not changing them. We're basically allowing or make it more likely for people who are very good, very good at that to succeed. I see that over and over again. And then biases like towards like biases become much more important as well. Right. Cause you're not just pu putting your yeah. trust in the numbers and in the facts, but into a person and that, activates all our biases so like who gets funded from vcs like we see you know the, the, the vast discrepancy between male and female or whatever right and and sure. so on and yeah. i think that all plays a massive role there and and ultimately in yeah i'm, I'm a bit passionate about that <laughs> yeah no so, I, I, I i think you're absolutely right i don't think you know the the I don't think the area of innovation accounting where you and I become particularly passionate is necessarily going to help move the human biases part of this. Right. Right? Like there are very obvious things that we know uh, that can help solve some of, of the typical human biases like sexism and racism, right? And mm -hmm. we know those things, right? There are things mm -hmm. like blind auditions for musicians. Uh, Amazon mm -hmm. typically does not allow PowerPoints, does not allow presentations. You must provide all of your, your business case information, your pitch must be in a six page document, right? Mm -hmm. And it must be written out in narrative format. And everybody's going to sit around a table and read it mm -hmm. uh, because there is less bias because I can't be charming in my presentation. I can't, I can't mm -hmm. express white maleness in my mm -hmm. presentation and confidence. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. no, no, you're, mm -hmm your pitch has to make sense. Like you have to have logic on a piece of paper in a way that is coherent and makes sense. Of course, there's still probably some biases there in terms of writing mm -hmm. style and things like that. Mm -hmm. But but the okay. methods of innovation accounting, to be honest, like that impacts the content. It doesn't impact the delivery system. We can okay. still be thrown off, even if you have a sophisticated Monte Carlo analysis based on estimations with ranges that you've right. created that yeah, create okay. a coherent financial projection. If you are pitching that in a PowerPoint, you are still uh, subject to all of the human biases about uh, race and Uh, vocal performance and sex and gender and all of those things. Like you, you're not going to get away from that by having a better accounting method, unfortunately. Okay. Well, that's, uh, that's destroying my dream, but yeah, much as I might yeah. like, I mean, the, the thing we have to do to, to do that is, <laughs> so we have to do innovation is, accounting is, and is, blind auditions. Less, yeah. Is, yeah. It's basically do blind auditions, right? Like that's what I would really have. That's the one thing that I like about, kind of having a format. Uh, a lot of people know that I, I generate a lot of templates on my website. We give them away right. as Creative Commons tools. Uh, but I'm also kind of known as the like, oh, don't use this template. Like just take mm -hmm. the idea and hack your own. You know, that's mm -hmm. why we created Commons. And so people can like take it and copy it and cut it up and, and make it their own type of template. But I, I kind of like the idea of templates, an idea of having like, look, this is what I want in your pitch. I want these 
six slides or I want this six-page document in this format because it kind of removes some of the bias out there. Like you, you say that um, I'm not going to be impressed by your fancy graphics in your PowerPoint slide. We just want it on a piece of paper. Like that's a nice way of removing some graphics. Of course, if you have the wrong template, you're totally screwed because now nobody can add in additional information that might be valuable that doesn't fit into the template. But um, the idea is, you know, standardize this stuff to some degree and, and help remove some of the biases from the system. Yeah, lovely. Yeah, lovely. So how does a team that have that has a, you know, has an idea, did a few customer interviews, maybe you know, maybe ran a first A-B test or something or landing page test or comprehension test or something, you know, what would be the best approach in your mind to avoid the business case with, with like one number? What is like, what does the process look like? Well, I think again, just for the purposes of, since we're in, in the realm of audio here, nobody can see anything. Um, mm. But what, let's just start with something super basic, right? So, We asked the entrepreneur for a prediction, a four-year prediction, and they said $100 million. Okay. And then we decided, well, wait a minute, let's, let's not quite be so certain there. Um, give me a range. Give me like, what is your worst case scenario here uh, is you're not going to make any money. So we have a range from zero to $100 million. Okay. Now that's an improvement. Um, and that's what we asked on day zero before they got started with the project. Mm -hmm. Now, in the simple scenario here, um, The entrepreneur goes out, does the customer discovery, works on their business model canvas. They've done some work. Let's ask them again. Hey, how much money do you think you're going to make over four years? What's the best case scenario? What's the worst case scenario? And now what we want to hear from the entrepreneur or entrepreneur in this case is uh, we want to hear that that range has gotten narrower. Right? So if they come back to us and say, hey, I think it could be a $150 million idea, or a $0 idea, then uh, something strange has happened, right? Because the range has just gone wider. So somehow there is more uncertainty in the entrepreneur's mind, uh, which is interesting, right? Okay, we can maybe ask some more questions, try and figure out why that is. But um, what should be happening is that the entrepreneur, maybe if they just went out and talked to 10 people, but you know what? Nine out of 10 of those people were super excited and had this really distinct problem that the entrepreneur felt they could solve. Like, you know what? The banking system is terrible and I really want to send money around the world to my families and relatives without so many transaction fees. Uh, and the entrepreneur thinks there's a way to solve that with, uh, I'm just going to go with Dogecoin right now because that's just funny. Um, okay, so they're going to solve that with some sort of Dogecoin transaction uh, exchange. Um, Great. Now the entrepreneur should say, I believe that uh, actually my, my best case estimate has increased. It's now 150 million over four years, but my worst case scenario has decreased. Uh, I now think that we are at a minimum going to earn $60 million. Okay. So, so my range, the, the distance between my best case and worst case is now 90 million. Before it was 100 million. Now it's 90 million. So what I can kind of see with the best and worst case numbers that they've expressed is that uh, they're actually more certain about the outcome here. They're not only more certain, but that range is, is a lot higher than zero. <laughs> so that, that's always a good thing. 
right? But the most important thing is even if the entrepreneur said, well, now my best case is 90 million and my worst case is zero, I, I see that they've generated some sort of information that has allowed them to narrow the range in some degree. Like they become more confident in their prediction. And that's what we want to see. Like if the range is getting wider, it means they're getting less certain and whatever they're doing is not helping them, right? They're not generating information that's useful. Um, most likely that's the case. Uh, but if the range is getting more certain, um, then it means that whatever they've been doing, talking to 10 people and nine mm. out of 10 mm. really excited, that made them more confident because they're look, they're like, look, 10 people is not a representative. It is not a representative sample of the 100 million people that we wish to serve, mm. right? But I know out of those 100 million people, at least nine are excited and have this issue, mm. right? So, so I know the numbers, no, the, the worst case scenario is no longer zero. And the best case scenario is no longer 100 million. It's uh, 99,999,999, right? Because one person was like, no, I don't care about that, right? So even with a very, very small sample size, like you've learned something. And when you have such a vast amount of uncertainty that your range is going from zero to 100 million, then even a little bit of information tells you a lot. Right? And, and that's a point that Douglas Hubbard, who wrote uh, this book, How to Measure Everything, always makes is, is that a little bit of information in a state of extreme uncertainty uh, is just going to tell you a tremendous amount. Like that information is very, very valuable. So that's what we want to hear from the early stage entrepreneurs, that they have an estimate and that estimate is narrowing because they have done some sort of research and gained some information or some insight from the market. Right? That's how we should proceed initially. Right, that was a long answer to a short question. Like this episode really becomes about ranges itself, right? So that's why why a range is so so good and so powerful. Like we advocate for estimating ranges for for a particular set of variables, you know, like and then and then run an analysis on it. It's called Monte Carlo. And um, I thought we would be talking about it, but I think this is really this is really good to just you yeah. know, stick stick with it here. It's also <laughs> As you said, it's audio. <laughs> it's a bit hard. Yeah, maybe. it's audio. Like, I, don't, I don't know how to efficiently explain Monte Carlo simulation. Maybe, but, yeah. but like, Monte Carlo simulation, for those of you who are scratching your head and saying, like, what's that? Like, yeah, it's that would basically be about gambling, right? <laughs> right? There'll, there'll be a link somewhere in here. But yeah. uh, but basically, it's just saying fancy math, fancy, fancy statistics-based math that we can mm. apply to those ranges that'll give us a more accurate estimate. But that's not really the important yeah. thing. Like, yeah, exactly. Uh, mm. Like, we don't need to apply the fancy math to understand that mm. that if I had this very, very wide range and I got information and the range narrowed, that is a good thing. Mm. I increased my my predictive mm. uh, powers, my insight here. Mm. Um, so, if we're if we're trying to give some some basic guidance as to like what are the principles we should be be bringing into early stage prediction, it, it, it's that. You know, first of all, uh, quantification is not bad. Okay, uh, the way that we are doing quantification is bad, mm. right? and the reason quantification is bad is because we are not allowing uncertainty to be represented in our equations. Mm. Right. Uh, once you represent uncertainty in your equations, then the the art of entrepreneurship is the art of reducing uncertainty. Right, and that means going and getting information. Right. So the valuable activity that these startups of the, the entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs should be doing is getting information. Uh, 
And, and then maybe the other thing that we can add to this is uh, to improve that basic business case is, uh, I'll, I'll throw in the other fancy term for another hyperlink, is, is a Fermi breakdown or free, uh, what, what do they call it? Really? Fermi it's decomposition. Fermi, um, Fermi de decomposition, right? Which is a super fancy way of saying, break it down into a simpler problem. Like for, for me, it was just a, a mathematician who was really good at this, right? But the, the simple explanation is um, if I ask everybody in Australia to tell me how high the Empire State Building is, uh, I'm expecting those answers to be kind of all over the place. I don't know, Aliyah, do you know how tall the Empire no. State Building is? I'm a New Yorker and I don't even know, right? That, that's a really hard thing to guess, just like it's hard for an entrepreneur to guess how much revenue they're going to have in $4 million. But uh, with the Empire State Building, you can decompose the question into a smaller set of questions that are easier to answer. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of the difference in doing a top-down market estimation versus a bottom-up analysis of a business model. Um, I can say, well, uh, I know that basically the height of the Empire State Building is the antenna on top, however tall that is, plus the height of the floors. And I know that the, the height of the building is the number of floors it has plus times the average height of each floor. And okay, so now I've got some things that are a little bit easier to estimate, mm. right? Because I know that an antenna, I don't know, it's, it's, it, it looks pretty big on top of the Empire State Building. So I'm gonna say that it's you know, no shorter than 20 feet um, and maybe no taller than 100 feet. Now that seems reasonable. Um, maybe I'd say 150 at that the outmost range. And uh, I know that the average height of a floor, again, I'm, I'm not particularly certain because I haven't lived in New York 20 years, but uh, I know that floors are generally not more than uh, 15 feet tall. That's a really, that's a, that's a really tall floor. In fact, I would say the average height of a floor is probably more like 10 feet, right? But if I wanted to be really, really safe and, and pad my kind of best case and worst case scenarios here, uh, I might say that the, the shortest a floor could be would be eight feet tall. And the tallest could be was, let's just say, say 12 seems reasonable, right? And then I just need, then I only have one more number, right? Like I decomposed the question of how tall is the Empire State Building into three separate questions. Like how tall is the antenna? What is the average height of each mm. floor? And how many floors there are? And now yeah, I just nice. need to guess and say that there's, you know, there's got to be more than 50, right? Because I've been in buildings in New York that were not as tall as the Empire State Building and are... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, at least 50. Now I'm probably going to be called a liar, but uh, I, I believe the Empire State Building has more than 50 floors, right? And I know it has less than 100 floors. Find the link right? below. <laughs> Find the link below, right? To, to get your answer. <laughs> but now I've, I've broken down the question to something that is easier to estimate. Right? Mm. And, and that you can do with your business model as well. You can say that, well, I believe that the cost per unit is going to be this. Mm. And I believe the revenue per unit, the mm. price that the customer is willing to pay is going to be this. Mm -hmm. And I believe that there are this many customers buying this many times per month. Mm. Therefore, the amount of revenue we're going to have per month is going to be this, because I believe yeah. that we can get 5% market share. And you, you break it down into these much, much smaller questions that are both easier to estimate and also easier to go out and run experiments on. Because I can much, much more easily go out and run an experiment and say, I am going to go into the factory and produce one unit of this. Or I'm even just going to go and talk to a manufacturing expert and say, like, hey, give me a range. How much, at the worst case scenario, would it cost to, uh, to produce this paperclip? 
um, or produce, you know, how many engineering hours, how many engineers, and how long do you think it will take to uh, to create a, a Dogecoin exchange uh, system? And I can get a worst case and a best case estimate, right? So I can break this down into smaller questions that somebody hopefully can find an answer to. Yeah, it's fantastic. And it's also really nice that um, referring to the the other episode that we recorded about how do we measure teams, right? It's really lovely now how we can, for those who have listened to it or who want to listen to it, ties back really well. So Yeah, right. Because one of yeah, our metrics for you was, was the innovation velocity, right? So how fast are they running experiments, or not innovation velocity, experiment velocity or insight velocity is, is how much information they're bringing back. And we can even quantify the value of that information by saying, look, it is reducing the range on these estimates that we've created. Right. And um, yeah, that's fantastic. So now we know, does a team make progress or not in, in, in yep. different ways? And one of them is apps or on the, on the product at least, or does the, is there, is there progress in, in the product means do we narrow any of these variables and therefore the entire range down? Yeah. And I think it would be fair to say that we have to be a little bit careful here and that we're not uh, kind of playing the same game again and insisting mm -hmm. that the team mm -hmm. um, narrows the range each time. Like they shouldn't yeah. be punished. Like if they yeah. run a few experiments and you're like, you know what, we still don't mm -hmm. know. It is still yeah. highly uncertain. It's highly volatile. Um, that could be the case. Like, um, yeah. Uh, we don't want to force them to like narrow yeah. the range unnecessarily, but that is yeah. what they should be doing, right? Like if they are going week after week after week, a week after into the field, and and none of the variables yeah. are are, <laughs> yeah. are getting a narrower range, then that is probably a problem. Yeah, but it's also nice, right? Because then then we can see if somebody needs help. You know, not not again. It's not always about punishing or and rewarding. It's about to see where yes. where do where do we need to improve as an organization rather. Like, how oh, that team might need a bit of assistance there, right? and that that could also yeah. be just an, just an indicator for that. Um, That's true. Yeah. Although we should probably also have an indicator at some point for our company, like percentage of teams that are willing to ask for help. <laughs> but that might be a another good indicator for our corporate culture. Uh, maybe that's, that's nice. one for your, your metrics book, but, uh, but yes, I think you're absolutely right. Very nice. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Fantastic. So I think, um, yeah, this episode is really about the, you know, the power of, of giving ranges and talking, talking in ranges. And then what we're passionate about is how to bridge that, how to bridge that communication gap often between the innovation team and and the finance team or the sponsor and this, this yeah. might be one of the most fundamental yeah i think so because it, so. it really yeah it really lets uh, i mean this the finance department has to take one step towards innovation and allow people to express themselves in uncertainty which means ranges Uh, but the moment they do that, then the entrepreneurs should also be able to take a step towards the finance department and say, okay, well, now that I know that it's okay to express my level of uncertainty, like mm -hmm. I am willing to give you predictions and I'm willing to revise those predictions on the basis of the information that I'm gathering. And if you ask me next week, you're going to get a different answer. You ask me a month from now, you're going to get a different answer because I'm going out and getting information and I'm improving the estimates. Like that should mm -hmm. be the story that, that allows us yeah. to communicate. Yeah, and work together. And then so 
and so back to back to the 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 problems with business cases and um, business plans and so on the fact that very often they fund a project for a long time so they're not very helpful in doing what we call metered funding mm-hmm. right and so when we have these when we have these ranges and we say look what we actually need money for is to at least for a while we want to work on this variable and we want to work on this variable and you know we have a we have a we have a bunch of experiments in mind and that's what we need the money for it's pretty it becomes pretty clear and hopefully more effective to to place more bets and not just having to place one bet on on something that we have to fund now for the next for the next year or next half year or next three years so the 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 way we allocate resources is a bit more granular right yeah right so for those that are maybe not familiar with metered funding we basically just mean instead of giving a project one million dollars and you know a year to execute we're releasing that money in, in small increments based on the amount of evidence that they're able to provide so we'll give them a hundred thousand dollars the first month and then maybe fifty thousand dollars the second month or whatever they need and they need to demonstrate that they're making progress and so now with our, our the way our conversation is going today we're, we're basically saying that as long as you provide information that is narrowing your ranges, that is reducing the level of uncertainty, we are going to keep funding you. And so uh, the the mental shift that the finance team has to do in this case is that they used to pay a million dollars and they would expect an output. They they were paying for a product that would generate revenue. Like that was the assumption. But in metered funding, they're actually not paying for the product, they're paying for information. Right? So they're, they're paying you to go out and reduce the level of uncertainty in this project by doing research. And it's the same as paying a super expensive company, like going out and, and spending $100,000 on a, a Nielsen report or a Gartner report. Uh, you know, CFOs have no problem doing that because they understand that that information is valuable. Um, but when early stage innovation teams ask for like $100,000 to create their MVP, uh, typically the word MVP or just saying that they're going to build a product and, and run a test market uh, changes the, the framing so that the finance department, the CFO, doesn't understand anymore that they're not going to be giving an ROI. They're just going to be mm. giving information. Mm. And if we can make that mental shift, and, and that's part of what metered funding and innovation accounting is all about. If we can make that shift in saying, you're going to give me money or resources, whatever, and I'm going to reduce the level of uncertainty so that eventually we can make a go, no go decision on this project. That That's what you're paying for, right? And when we get enough information, when the level of uncertainty has been reduced so that I can say, this is definitively either a good idea or a bad idea, like that is when you are now like, paying money for the ROI. Okay. But up to, and including that point, you're paying for information. Yeah. Wonderful. I think that that sums it up really well. And yeah, we do that by, by narrowing down, down these ranges. And I think that what we want to leave the listeners with, I suppose. Yeah, I think absolutely. I think it's the simplest way of understanding what, what innovation accounting should be is it should be, like express uncertainty in your numbers mm. and reduce the ranges as you proceed with your project. Like mm. that's it. This is, this is a game of information and, and innovation. Yeah. The person with the more information 
uh, is the person who is eventually going to win, or at least win more consistently with a greater number of projects right. over time. Right, increasing increasing the odds of success, really, right? Yes. And and making it success. And making it a team effort as an organization. I think that will yeah. be that will be okay. I'm that would be my dream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah no, that's, that's probably the other important thing, right? Because this is hard to see as an individual entrepreneur, right? Because you're like, okay, I played this whole information game, I ran all these experiments, and it turns out this yeah. is a terrible idea. Uh, and then you feel like a failure, but you're like, no, no, no. But no. on the whole, if all of us perform these yeah. experiments and, yeah. and all of these projects yeah. are kind of information-based and we play yeah. this information game, we get more information, we're, yeah. as you said, placing better bets. And we're yeah. going to be placing better bets because we have better estimates. Yeah. Uh, we, have, we know the odds. Yeah. And by, and by funding in this way and by communicating this way, we can play simply more. We don't have to pretend to know more and have to do things we know already we shouldn't. Like we already kind of have a good idea this project shouldn't go ahead, but we, we fund it. Or like how often did we have to spend or did people have to spend money that was already allocated that they shouldn't have spent anymore just to make their budget again? It's just like, it's like a council that has been funded yeah. to make like, and it's just like yeah. an incredible that's, amount that's of That's like a government problem. <laughs> No, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> it's also a corporate problem that is definitely a government problem. It's like I've heard, like, uh, I don't I don't always mind if I'm on the receiving end, but, uh, you know, when you hear that phrase like, oh, we have budget left over that we must spend, you're like, well, I don't understand. Why do you have to spend that? Yeah. Like nobody, no individual yeah. human being like winds, winds up on, you know, yeah. December 23rd, like saying like, Oh, I have an extra $10,000 in my bank account. I must spend it by December 31st. Yeah. Like that would be an insane thing to say. Yeah. Right. Um, unless you have some weird tax loophole you're trying to exploit, uh, you know, like, no, you save money. That's great. Save your money. Like don't spend it. You can spend it next year. You can spend it on January 1st and it'll be just as valid. But, uh, governments and some corporations like if you don't spend your money uh, your money might be taken away next year like you don't get to keep the money the promise here the promise and the hope for innovation accounting is for an organization to increase increase the odds of success by by being able to place more bets and better bets or the other way around yeah yeah you're increasing the odds of success and therefore you're going to increase the overall ROI of your company because you're going to stop putting money on things that hands that you should fold, so to speak. Yeah. And uh, I'll, I'll give a shameless plug here. We have a, a game on our website uh, called Plain Chromatic mm. uh, that we'll, we'll put yeah. a link to in the, in the, in the cards yeah. here called just chromatic.com slash tools slash innovation dash management. And yeah. it, it's a game that, that talks all about innovation funding and shows you some of the math behind why, making multiple decisions, multiple investment decisions rather than just one big investment decision makes sense and why it makes sense to shut down projects uh, early. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. I think we I think we um we've got a good episode here. And I'm really really I glad we, we I think we yeah, and I'm really glad we we narrowed down on the ranges. Oh my god, did that work? No. I think so. I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll let the, the listeners decide. Um, yeah, ranges are ranges are awesome. Ranges are awesome. Thank you very much, Tristan. No, thank you very much, Aaliyah. <laughs>